morning. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jolene. And today we're talking about OSR rules again. Well, this is a special request, I believe. It was. It was in a text message. <laughs> what was the original text message to say? I want to hear about the different OSR. Ah, yes. Games. I think OS, we talked about OSR a while ago. and we covered, It's been way over a year. And I think things have, haven't changed too much, but I think quite a few rules have become what I would call re- really popular. And I think our understanding of what OSR means has also increased because we've actually played a couple OSR games and we read a couple of rules or I have read a couple of rule sets and bought a few rule sets and we talked about why people like OSR and I think you said it the main thing is nostalgia right right I think that's it I've heard of other people why they like playing going back to this type of uh, earlier type of game system D&D I kind of understand the idea behind it. I I think uh, when you look at D&D 5th edition and 3rd edition, the players, the characters, I should say, have become very powerful from the very beginning. And compared to what they were like in original D&D and AD&D starting off characters. And some people miss that. They miss that, that grind, you know, like, they could die at any minute, you know, and it was a, it really was a, a, you were worried about your character dying all the time. I thought it was funny when um, I was watching some YouTube videos on OSR games and one guy said that his friends came back one summer with D&D and, and he was like, oh, he'd been reading, um, choose your adventure choose your path oh, yeah. adventures and he said and his the gm asked or the dm asked him what do you want to play he goes i want to play a magic user he goes no you don't he goes yes i want to play a magic user he goes okay it's your funeral <laughs> and he goes sure enough before he even named his wizard he was dead <laughs> in the first in the first session Against a pixie, I believe he said. Against a pixie, and then he said after that he was uh, it was all fighters and. He said rogues, but I don't think they existed back then, thieves, yeah, but mainly they were fighters, I believe. My whole, I don't want to call it an issue, but I have to wrap my brain around all the different versions of D and D right for these OSR games, and also the fact that they couldn't put anything copyrighted in them, so. In my brain, that's really hard to accept that there's all these different editions. There's the original D&D, and Saul tells me these box colors, right? There's the the white box and the blue box and the... Expert set. Expert set. Yeah. And then AD&D, right? Mm-hmm. And Not in that particular order. Obviously, because I don't know the exact order that they came out in. Well, it's amazing because, like, for me and Augustine, for me and my brother when we were playing, and my friends, we played, and 
we just went from one edition to another, though we stuck with AD&D for quite a while. We didn't, we didn't move to second edition for whatever reason. I believe the reason was you didn't have a game store by you or you didn't have enough money to buy a whole new I just set. Never, I know we never saw the books. I mean, I remember seeing them like at B Dalton's, mm-hmm. but they were like, well, why are we going to buy second edition? It just looks like it looks like regular AD&D that they had. And then they were like, uh, to me, they were ugly books, right? I don't know. If- okay. I'm not sure what an ugly book is. You didn't like the picture? The art, the front art was fine. Okay. Right? But then when you open up the books, they had this like green tint to them, the pages. And like everything had like this green s- scheme, right? Like? Like, like the box, the, like uh, all the charts were like in shades of green, the sickly green look. Like I said before, we just didn't feel like there was a need to go to second edition or buy the books for second edition. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money anyway. So There are times when I wish that you would have stayed with that idea because my house is filled with books of all sorts of editions. Well, I'm not as poor and as And all sorts be. of games. <laughs> not as poor as it used to be. So it's interesting that back to the reason why people like OSR or want to get back to that style of gaming. At first, I didn't understand it. I'm like, well, I like 3rd edition, and I like 5th edition. And I really do like them, and I do think they're pretty cool games. And I like playing them, and I like running them. I think one of the things is, as the character, player characters, the the skills, and the, um, yeah, I guess in Pathfinder, traits. They don't have traits in D&D. Feats. Feats. All of the different things that you can use to make your character more powerful, which is what mini maxers want to do, right? They, right. They, and a lot of people really want to have the most powerful character. And that harkens back to the days when your f- first level wizard could die with from, by a pixie, right? Right. So even though you're a wizard in, in fifth edition, you still have little hit points, but not two hit points right right exactly so so players like that and and i can understand that because i don't want to you go to all the trouble to make a character unless you're playing traveler character does while you're making it but in D &D, you 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 put a lot of thought into it right you got all the you roll the dice you you get all your little numbers together you put them into your stats and then you pick your do you pick skills or whatever you just get them in what? In, the in AD- fifth edition. Oh, fifth, yeah, no, you pick skills. Yeah. You get to choose them. So I can see that aspect of it that you really like it. But then when when you're looking at um, the OSR, they get rid of the skills, basically. Right. So then it's more the old style where this is the part where the, the DM is not adversarial, right? He, well, he, he could be, but... He chooses, you tell him what you want to do, and he goes, oh, well, then that would be like strength and what? Agility. Okay, roll those. Right, or make up some sort of mechanic or die roll to to figure how that plays out. Versus in 5th edition, where a player is going, okay, I'm going to use this skill, and this is what I'm going to do. And I I totally, now that I I looked at OSR a little bit longer and I've heard different bloggers and different people talk about OSR and why they like OSR. I can see that type of gameplay being very 
uh, appealing to people, right? And I think it, it really hit home when when one of them said, and I've heard it before, but lately we were watching some video, and he said, the player doesn't have to look down at their sheet to see what they can do. Because I can see that being a way of limiting a player's imagination when they look down at the sheet and say, okay, these are the things my character can do. And it kind of puts like a box around what they can do instead of saying, looking down going, okay, I have a pretty good strength, so I'm going to try to use strength in some way to get around this obstacle, right? And I think that is where OSR really does make a difference or where it really shines is that it seems to me less of a tactical game, less of counting squares and see how far I can move and see what tactical advantage I can get and make sure that I, I use this spell or use this feat at this point and get a tactical advantage. It's more of a role-playing game where you're just talking to somebody, trying to explain what you're trying to do, and then the rules, the referee, that's what the, he was called because he's an arbitrator of the rules. Was that the, was that a, or, uh, was that a D and D thing or yeah. was that? Okay. That was the Gary Gygax thing. Okay. The referee. And, uh, and, you know, of course it was the dungeon master, but, but there's also references to being a, a referee. I mean, I remember that's what we used to call the DM, GM, whatever. It's, See, I, I've only grown grown up i I, w I came along in the 80s right and i was like they called the it was the dungeon master and he was in charge at least my brother's friends that's what they said of course they were like 11 and 12 right and they right. needed an extra player so here i was sitting in some guy's basement <laughs> so so that's that's my experience so i never heard the word referee and when i think of referees i i think of sports right right and in the United States, the the players usually they they talk back to the referees and they <laughs> and they don't give them much respect. Versus when we watch rugby, right? Then the the referee is really in charge, and they tell them don't do this and don't talk back to me, right? So th that gives me different connotations about what a referee versus dungeon master. <laughs> Just saying. There's uh, Jolene's uh, opinion of American uh, sports players. Sports players. I was gonna say ball players, but that doesn't really make sense. Now you went off on a tangent. I'm sorry. There you go. That's good. That's good. Okay, so so looking at it through that lens as as a player who played original D and D and went on to A D and D, and then well, I didn't do second edition, but and didn't play BX and didn't play expert edition. Though some people that was their first game, right? And they really like. That was like, uh, you know, I don't know what you would call it. That was the their introduction to role playing, and they they love that system, right? That it it it's it, like you said, nostalgia kicks in when they when they reimagine and they go back to that game. I'm not sure how much nostalgia I would have if I try to play a D and D or even original D and D. I mean. It was pretty rough, and I remember it being pretty rough. And I was like, "Man, I like their edition because <laughs> my character can actually live." But I can understand, like I said, I can understand that wanting that the fight for survival and thinking on your feet kind of gameplay. And I, I think that really does attract a lot of 
players who are not too much won over by this fifth edition where you're playing more heroic characters instead of these characters who are just like, you're just a farmer who decides that. I'm not doing this anymore. I, doing I want to make some money. I want to go find gold. So we looked at we looked at different systems and and different people like different systems for different reasons, and it's interesting how the different versions of OSR are attached to a specific set. So like uh, original D and D, right? I I wouldn't think a lot of people would want to play that system because for the most part, it was uh, it was very 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 basic, right? It was very simple. And I think a lot of the problems were, were was where was were at the time when Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were writing this stuff is it had never been done before. So there was no template on how to explain the rules. And when you're explaining a concept that is pretty new or groundbreaking, sometimes, you know, stuff gets lost in translation, right? Well, and then for OSR, these... I don't know the people's names who did it. Sorry. For the original D&D, there's two that I looked at or we right. saw. Swords and Wizardry. Is that one of Swords them? Swords and Wizardry, I think it is. And yeah. Old School... Essentials. Essentials. Right. And one of the things that one of the guys I was listening to said is that when they put these um, OSR books together... Right. They took the originals, D&D, without any copyright, of course. They took all that stuff out which I'm not totally sure exactly what that is, but someone can tell me if they really want to. Not only did they take the rules and put them together in a little bit better way that they understood them. Better organized. Or better organization. But also, they'd learned a lot of stuff in 40 years or 30 years, however long it was. And they added some of the homebrew ideas that people had had, right? That things that weren't exactly... That in, the they, rules. in the rules that, that people did all the time. Right. Right. Like surprise or something like that. I mean, I don't remember. Honestly, I don't remember original, the original rules, even though I have the white box right there sitting on my shelf. It's been ages since I've looked at it. It's been ages since. It's been 40, 50, I don't know, about 50 years, but it's been 40 years since we played it. So, and we quickly moved on to AD&D. I think it's very interesting that those little books, I mean, there's not that many pages. And I think what, what the OSR community has done, and is, and some of them have done a really excellent job of, is clarifying some of these rules, omitting any errors, fixing things that were broken, and then presenting them in a very, very appealing factor, form factor, right? You know, they're, they're, these books look really nice. Uh, the, the They have not, you know... Art that harkens back to the time of the of the the seventies of the seventies, and it gives you that snapshot of that of that rule set in a much in a in a clear, uh, concise, and they fixed all the errors. So, if you want to play that game, you literally can go to, you know, either one of these two sets, and and play that game, and play the game almost uh, like from nineteen seventy four. I think that the changes. They reorganize or they organized it in a better way, and they added some stuff that they learned as they have right. been playing for through the years, right? right? Well, there's, it seems to me that OSR has has like this 
not like a dual personality or something, but but there's those people who are trying to get back to the original rules and like rules as written and not change too much. And then there's other OSR people who like, yeah, I like the original rules. I like this set of rules. Let's say the original D and D, but there's certain things about modern games about modern D and D that I like advantage or disadvantage and stuff like that. And some of them have done that. And some of them don't depending on what their, what their goal is. And I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting where certain authors of, of OSR will take elements from the past 50 years of role playing and add them to the original rules. So I don't know exactly the order, but I have written down that Osric. Osric. Osric is AD and D. Right. So I've heard of Osric for a long time. Uh, I think it's in its third edition. You can buy the book. It's pretty cheap. I think it's like for 30 bucks. And it and Osric is basically A D and D, the first three the three books, the Monster Manual, the Player's Manual, and the Dungeon Master's Guide, and it's all together in one volume. It's all been like they they basically took apart the rules, they put them back together, and that set of rules I I is the classic Gary Gygax set of rules, right? They call it high Gygaxian, the way he wrote. I guess he wrote in a certain prose, which I never realized, but because I, like I said, I had never, we have, honestly, when when we were playing AD&D, we had never seen any other role-playing game at all. So when we were reading these rules, it was like, oh, this is, this is the this way. This is the way it is. This is the way the rules are, you know. And so we just did, read them, and tried to understand them the best we could. And even the OSR guy said that he had gotten some rules wrong as far as, like, surprise, that he never realized that he was doing surprise wrong. He always, the the party was surprised on a one or a two. But then he goes, oh, but if I roll a, if I roll a one, I get one surprise segment, full round of surprise. But if I roll a two, I get two rounds of surprise, which I, ne- I don't remember playing that way. I remember playing, if we rolled a one, you were surprised. And if you didn't, oh well. Okay, so let's talk about the rolling thing for different things. Rolling a one for surprise. So one of the things that a lot of these, a lot of the videos I watched, they talked about. They really love charts, <laughs> and and I know I've talked about this before. And I, I Saul asked me, "What do you think about the the charts?" And I go, and I told him, "I go, charts are fine." It makes it very random, but then sometimes you kill somebody's horse on accident because you accidentally rolled a four, and that's what it does. And then you feel really bad because you didn't want to kill their horse. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was, I forget what set of rules. I I don't know. We we looked at so many. I think it was probably uh, old school essentials, and uh, that the person was going on and on about charts, and I'm like, well, I know this is not going to appeal to Jolene because she hates not she hates charts, but I like I don't I I've learned to accept the randomness, right? And and uh, Mike Saul and Felipe were playing a, a I don't remember which game it was, but where fantasy gaming, low fantasy gaming, and 
they would roll to see what they were going to encounter. And I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that, right? Because it's so random. What if you encounter something that you've never heard of, right? A monster that you've never heard of. So then the, the GM has to stop and go, oh, let me look up that monster. Oh, that the GM never has heard of. Right. It's okay if the players never heard of that monster. Right. No, but the, the GM, I was thinking from the perspective of the GM. If it's on a chart, would you have to look up? But the chart includes everything, right? right? So you'd have to look everything up. No, no. It's the, the, the cool thing about that game, low fantasy gaming, and it is a OSR, but it's also one of those OSRs that mixes new ideas with, with old ideas, right? So it's not a true... It's a gritty game, basically. It's a gritty game, but it's not a true like representation or reimagining of AD&D right. or whatever. It is takes elements of of old school old, games. old school games and kind of mixes in new ideas about role playing and and new rules and stuff like that, like advantage or disadvantage and stuff like that, to so make things easier. So that set of rules. What was pretty cool is is that when you rolled on a table, the description of the monster or whatever was right there. So because, oh, it was there. Because it was so basic, right? Okay. It, was, it would describe the monster. It would say, it's a bullet, which is a land shark. Right. And it would tell you to hit dice, or how strong it was. It would tell you to attack, and that's it. And it would give you, like, if you didn't know what a bullet was, it said a large burrowing animal that looks like a shark. Yeah. Attacks people from surprise and this and that. And okay, that's... It's basically like a little paragraph. That's not as bad as I thought. But then you were also doing, there was a chart for terrain that you were going to come upon. And and my only my only issue was that was, what if you're in the rainforest and all of a sudden you're in the desert? Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah. That I you think... walk that far? Or I don't know. I'm, I'm just, these are just some of my, my issues with charts. But I have to say that we've played space opera before and... There are charts for like when you hit something, you roll the percentile dice to see where you hit. Oh yeah, yeah. And those are more interesting charts, right? Because that's a randomization of so because you don't know like if you shoot a gun and hit someone, you know that it hits them in the upper right quadrant, but you don't know what that's gonna do. Right. And I mean, you probably know what it's gonna do. It's probably gonna kill them, but you know what I mean. You don't know exactly. So when you're rolling the 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 percentile dice to see where you hit or right. what you, you know, you took off their leg, that kind of thing. And yeah. adds an element of surprise and, and, and. Or flavor to the game right. versus, versus going from one place to another. I don't know. I don't know. Charts are interesting. These, this one guy was really enthralled with them. And yes. I was like looking at the video going, I wish I could understand why. Well, I am I'm, I'm not as enthralled with charts as that guy was. And he was like just going on about there's a chart for everything, right? And the only time you kind of like, oh, that's pretty cool. And you said it exactly. We were watching this video is when he started talking about uh, magical item charts. Oh, yes. And treasure charts. And treasure charts. So those charts make sense, right? Because then... You know, as a GM, you, you're also surprised to see what they find, which is pretty cool, I guess. You know, and then you got to deal with the consequences of what they find, as so do the players. If they find something really valuable or really powerful, then you have to deal with that situation. I'm sure there's charts that, well, 
the characters are this level, they're not going to find the the hand of Vecna or something on the first level dungeon and stuff like that. So they're probably they're probably appropriate to the level that the that the characters are or the dungeon that they're in. But this guy was going off on the charts about you're right, uh terrain charts, uh encounter charts and and stuff like that. And I I'm not too intrigued about those kind of charts. I don't mind charts with like I said with magical items, uh other things like that. Things you find in people's pockets, you know. There's, yeah. There's a whole uh, industry in drive-through RPG that have charts like that. 101 things you find in a spaceport. 101 things you find in a yeah. in a in a store uh, in a in a shopkeeper's inn or something like that. So stuff like that is pretty interesting, just because you sometimes you get tired of trying to make up stuff. So so so, so that that would be good for if you got tired of trying to make up stuff or the treasure chart or how much money you find in someone's pocket that kind of thing but also just to point out that if you really don't like charts and you're playing an osr game that has charts you don't have to use them unless your players really are into them right (laughs) well of course i mean everything you can use or not use so so i thought it was very interesting that the that the old school essentials and uh uh, we I, we didn't really look into the other one, Swords and Wizardry uh, set, but the old school essentials. There's all kinds of support for that material, and they're really done a uh, a, a good job of uh, of going through the rules and clarifying rules. And that's another thing is like because Gary and Gary Gygax and uh, Dave Arneson were very new to this whole thing. Sometimes the, their explanations weren't very clear, right? Uh, and when you know something, and this happens in anything, when you know something, it's very easy for you to to explain it and think, oh, I explained it well because I understand it. But to the person that you're explaining it to, you're like, they're like, what the heck did you just say? Because they don't have the concepts that you have. So I think the good thing about osr community is going to back to these rule sets and then re going through them and clarifying the rules and and just sharpening up the the mistakes and the errors and and making things just easier to understand i think uh that comes from having played these games for so many years right, right? yeah not only the original games but other the other editions of D and other games right right i think one version was completely Comparing uh, AD&D rules to the Osric, and it was just the or the way they organized the information, putting it out in a, a a way that makes a lot more sense. Right, according to them. Yeah, and it, and it did make sense. I mean, uh, the, the the person compared, you know, put the the actual text of the AD&D book next to what the Osric said, and and obviously, and to me. Osric was much more clear, especially to a modern audience. So the next one that um, is the Blue Holmes, which is from the basic basic set, I believe. Yes. Yes. So what's weird, what's really weird for me is that me and my brother and my friends we went from original D and D to A D and D. Now my f- other friends, uh, Sif and Esteban, they got the 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 box set. 
and the they, blue box set. Yeah. Okay. And they played that by themselves. They made their own characters. They had their own adventures without me. And uh, <laughs> not that he's bitter. Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> uh, but I didn't know that they did that. I knew they had gotten the box because their parents had bought them the box or something. Collectively, we never played it, that set. So I never got, I never even read those rules. I remember them looking at it and having it. I'm like, hey, when'd you get that? Oh, we got it for Christmas or somebody's birthday. I forget what. And then, but they played him and his brother by themselves. Mm -hmm. And I never played that set. So I don't have a lot, any experience with the, that set. Which, which I guess some people, you know, when D&D first came out, instead of buying these books with this demon on it, you know, which kind of might scare people. Uh, which was AD&D, right? Which was AD&D. Yeah. More or less at the same time, they came out with this basic box set that said, oh, this is an introductory set, has dice, has everything, theoretically everything you need to start playing. And, and people fell in love with that set. And a lot of people who... A slightly younger than me, probably. Uh, that's the that was the 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 rule set that they learned, and they really love that set. And people go back to it. And there's all kinds of different editions of different OSRs that mimic that play style or that set. I think they call it Blue Homes. Is the Blue most, Homes is yeah. the most popular. And I think it's interesting that that they name. The sets after like the people who wrote the rules, because I guess Holmes was the first was the principal writer of the rule set, and uh, and because I never I don't have any experience reading those rules, I never read them. Some people really liked the way he explained the rules. They really liked the the manner that he wrote the rules, and I think it's interesting that people have this this what is it? I guess it is nostalgia to that set, and and really want to play that set again. Yes. Just like every other set, I guess. And then there was an interesting one called Dark Dungeons. <laughs> well, it's still out. I think Dark Dungeons just kind of makes fun of that. What do they call it? The, the Chick Track. Chick Track, which I didn't know who that person was. And I had never heard of it. And I had heard of it. I, I've seen them when I was a teenager. They gave them to us to hand out. I don't, right. Not that particular not one. Not that but particular one? I think it's interesting because... I was playing in the heyday of the satanic panic. And Salinas, for some reason, it didn't hit, right? It's because Salinas is in a time warp sometimes. <laughs> you know, and what's weird is my parents were theoretically Catholic. I don't think it was a Catholic thing, though. It was a, it was a Protestant thing. It was a Protestant you satanic think, panic. I think there would be some spillover. I don't think so. Well, okay. I don't think D&D, at least... For the most part, it wasn't a big deal in the Salinas community. Though, I I can't speak for everyone who is from Salinas who played back then. But in other communities, Satanic Panic was a big deal. And one of the things that that helped that Satanic Panic was this chick track where it was called Dark Dungeons or something like that, where I think it's Black Leaf or something like anyway. that. Anyway... Is one of the characters that goes nuts and wants to play D and D for real, uh -huh. and that's where you know you slippery slope into the Satanism or whatever. So uh, I think Dark Dungeons is just kind of makes fun of that whole situation. The whole the whole thing, yeah. 
Um, and then I was watching this video and I was like, I, I this guy t- talked about this game called The Astonishing Swordsman <laughs> of Hyboria. Hyboria? Yeah. And I went, oh, I know what that is. Not that I ever seen the book or anything, but I knew a Conan reference when I heard one. Right. Which I may not have known before I was asked to read Conan stories. <laughs> That's interesting. That's supposedly an AD&D clone or OSR book, but it includes all kinds of other stuff, all right? It includes uh, ideas of, uh, it has its own world mm-hmm. mythology. It does take and stuff. And it is Conan, right? It takes stuff from, from uh, Robert. Robert E. Howard mm-hmm. and the Cthulhu guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Cthulhu guy? What's his name? I forget. <laughs> Robert Lee Howard, the guy who we talked to. Yeah. Uh, See, I just made you forget. Yes, you did, and I hate that when you do that. <laughs> There's a slight pause as I try to remember his name. H.P. <sighs> Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft, who Robert E. Howard talked to they and was friends with. They yes. corresponded by letters. And there's another there's another author who wrote in that pulp style. I forget the name, but all the, the, they keep mentioning them in the videos. And all these three authors are hyperborea is like they're almost like forgotten realms it was their shared world or they made it into a shared world i I don't know i don't know about that i don't know about the shared world part okay but um but pulp it is very pulp yes so anyway i know i know for a fact that robert e howard came up with hyperborea yes right because he had maps in the in the in the book that we read and the astonishing swordsman of hyborea has the ma- has a map right right correct so it's based in that world uh it has that really gritty feel uh low magic uh high f- fantasy high pulp action type of stuff and that is the one that i would like to play felipe <laughs> and mike <laughs> so i think it's interesting that that's the one that this one uh i guess a youtuber or whatever really liked it is not a direct port of AD&D. It's not like Osric, because Osric is just AD&D, and they took out all the the references the, that is a copywritten, right? It's just the rules and cleared, cleaned up, and referenced, easy reference and all that stuff, where Astonishing Swordsman of Hyperborea is a, a setting, has a, all kinds of... A, classes like the guy who was going on uh, going on about it has like 28 different classes you can play and he just loved it i i think he just loved conan that idea because he was a he was a robert e howard fan well and an hp lovecraft fan. if you read robert e howard you're gonna love conan <laughs> i'm just saying he obviously loves that type of game play uh, AD&D and if you mix in your favorite type of setting then it's like a home run out of the park and that's what that's what that game is I think it's in its third print third edition although it's out of print right no it's now back in print oh now it's back in print okay. the, the first what happened was I think the guy kickstarted it mm-hmm. and he made a thousand books and then that's it so that's all there is of the first edition and then he came up with a second edition and now he has a third edition, which is now of. I think you could just buy the books. Okay. So the, I think, and then instead of one tome, 
like the big old huge book that he made uh he separates into like a, a player's handbook and then a, a dungeon master and which was the one you bought i bought the first edition okay i was lucky i got it pretty cheap anyway so that's a pretty cool uh set of rules i think uh i haven't really dived into it because it is you know old school it is osr and at the time or lately i haven't really been looking at looking at uh fantasy games there's a lot of fantasy games i already have i've played fantasy games for quite a long time and i've been looking at other games but but i might take a look at that one again check it out so uh i think it's interesting that that some people really like osric because it they took everything out and it's it's a uh, it's just the rules, and then the other people like uh, Astonishing Stories of Hyperborea, which is uh, another AD and D clone, but it's filled with setting, right? And it, it you know it's you can everything you need to run is in that one book, uh, or now in two books, and it's it's heavily uh, supported. I was just looking at Astonishing uh, Stories of Hyperborea, and there's like a ton of adventures already available for that game which is amazing i think so whatever osr game you decide you want to play the rules seem to be written clearer or right you have in a better in a better format or something yeah what i find interesting is that even though we're they're trying to mimic one set of rules like for example old school essentials is mimicking original D D, and so is uh, Swords, Swords of Wizardry. And, Wizardry. and I'm sure there's like probably two or three other that are trying to mimic that set of rules. That style, yeah. Right. And then each set of rules has like two or three or more set of rules that try to mimic that kind of gameplay. And I think it's just everybody has their own idea of what those set of rules meant to them and what was important to them. And that's what they include in their set of rules. Like Old School Essentials, full of charts, right? We saw that book. It was yes. just chart after chart. After, and, there, and there's three books of them. And it's, they're not small books. Like they mimic the little white books. But those books are big. Where Swords and Wizardry is a much smaller set of rules. And it tries, to me, tries to just do what the original set did or said. Or it was very concise and very small. So I think there's different approaches to how they want to look at each and every set. I think, like I said, Jolene uh, was looking at uh, Astonishing Swordsman of Hyperborea, where she would probably want to play that and buy that book instead of like Osric, which is just like a reference document, right? Sure, there's art. Sure, there's nice looking book. But Osric doesn't have any setting where... The Astonishing Swordsman of Hyperborea has that Conan feel and that that type of world and greediness, and it has a world. So I think uh, I think it's interesting how the OSR community is really digging into these old style rules and then adding and subtracting things that will appeal to different players. And you can find almost any kind of rule set that you want. And, you know, if you want something that's a little bit more complicated, if you want something that mixes in old new ideas, or if you want something that's literally just a reiteration of the rules cleared up and you want to play old style just like it was 1974, you could. 
just like it was 1974. <laughs> there you go. So if you want to play OSR, yes. pick pick whatever whatever original box set you liked, or AD and D or original rules, and then go and find it the OSR version and try it out. See what's different. I'm sure you can get them on drive drive through RPG, right? Some of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, you don't have to spend a, a ton of money on on the book if you just want to check it out, right? To try. And some of them are. One of them is is free. Something. Yeah, Osric is free. Like you could just download the PDF. Yeah. And what's amazing is some of these guys, uh, some of these companies, they're like. They rarely charge any kind of. They charge just the cost, right? And maybe the, maybe they'll make a buck off of it, but it seems like I was looking at old school essentials or one of the books I forgot, and it was like I think it was Osric. It was twenty nine dollars, yeah, for a hardback book, which is amazing. So there you go. Go find your OSR game and try it out. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jolene. Yeah, have a good day. <laughs>